0: And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will give their, forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And from the New Testament, John 10, verses 14 to 18. I am the good shepherd. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: We're studying through the beautiful little book, 1 John, that was written in order that we might know that we have eternal life. John tells us at the end of his gospel that he wrote his gospel and included all of the stories of Jesus that he was able to include so that we might believe. But now he writes this beautiful little book as he tells us in chapter 5, verse 13, that those who have believed in Jesus might know that we have eternal life. And so we come this morning to chapter 2, And we'll be reading verses 1 through 6. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we've come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him, truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The gospel as presented in the scripture is a vast and glorious thing. It includes, of course, you and me. By God's grace, it includes people but we sometimes fail to realize that it goes beyond humanity. It goes down to subatomic particles, and it is as vast as this glorious cosmos that extends beyond the reaches even of the Webb telescope which is bringing back magnificent images of what we've not been able to see before. And I say that because it is sad well, how, how can I prove that? Um, the Bible opens with the words, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And when the Bible says the heavens and the earth, it's not talking about the heavens and the earth merely. It is called a merism. And a merism means you take two opposing parts of a whole as an expression for the entire whole. So whenever you read the heavens and the earth in the Bible, it means the cosmos, And it opens with the creation of the cosmos. How does it close? With John saying, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth and the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband and God makes his home with us. In other words, the salvation is not only of people, it is not even only of the earth. It is of this entire cosmos. And that's why In the best known and most beloved verse in all the Bible, John 3.16, the first one that most of us who grew up in Sunday school were taught, the word God so loved the world, the Greek word for world, is, guess, cosmos. God so loved the cosmos, all of this that he has made. That he sent his son to redeem it. Now, why am I emphasizing that as we look at these verses? Because tragically, American Christianity has basically reduced the gospel to a bumper sticker. I'm a mess, but I'm forgiven. That's the gospel. Isn't that good news? Well, not to me, it isn't. I'd like someday to have hope of being more than just a mess who's forgiven. Dallas Willard, in his uh, very interesting book, The Divine Conspiracy, that sort of summarized—you know, Willard, we know, is a spiritual writer, but he was a very high-level philosopher who taught and was chairman of the Department of Philosophy at USC for many years, and I don't mean University of South Carolina, I mean uh, University of Southern California. And a very respected philosopher, but began writing on the spiritual life and went deep. And in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, he says that the gospel as it's usually preached in America today is merely an attempt at sin management. Sin management, he writes these words. The current situation in which faith professed has little impact on the whole of our life." is not unique to our times, nor is it a recent development, but it is currently at an acute stage. History has brought us to the point where the Christian message is thought to be essentially concerned only with how to deal with sin, with wrongdoing or wrong being and its effects. Life, our actual existence, is not included in what is now presented as the heart of the Christian message, or it is included only marginally. That is where we find ourselves today. And this little letter that we're studying is a powerful antidote to such reductionism because John is presenting a beautifully balanced picture of the gospel and it's very clear in the first two verses that we read why is he doing this well of course he was an apostle he'd been a disciple and he was an apostle he's charged with this but look at how he introduces what he's saying here those opening words of chapter 2 my little children there is an intimacy and a love expressed. He is speaking because he wants these people to get it. He wants them to stop living with counterfeit gospels or truncated versions of the gospel, and out of the love and overflow of his heart, he's longing for them to get this capacious, glorious view of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Uh, Another person who is pressed into this, I've seen some of his books here in the church, so I know that uh, many of you are probably familiar with him. He only died recently, as did Dallas Willard. But David Powlison, the uh, Westminster Seminary uh, biblical counselor who wrote so many fine books, in one of his works on sanctification, wrote these arresting words. And I remember when I first read them, being a little bit shocked But in context, he was writing against the same thing that Willard was writing The Divine Conspiracy against. He said this, I'll try to get it right. He said, the cross is bigger than forgiveness, and the gospel is bigger than the cross, and the word of God is bigger than the gospel. Wow. I'd never read anyone saying that, but as I read it in context of that work on sanctification, what he was doing was widening the angle of our lens to say what God has done for us is so much bigger than simply going day by day for one thing, and that's forgiveness of sin. Yes, it is that, but it is so much more. And so, Let's look at how he develops that in these verses. In the first two verses, we see the beautiful balance. And and in summary, I would say the way that we keep this in balance is by very intentionally seeking to think every day about the fact that Christ has done a work for us. And that's where all the emphasis is today. And it's crucial. Without that, we have nothing. But... He has also done and is continuing to do a work in us, a work in us. And we see him developing that. It reminds me one of the uh, great old men when I was starting ministry down in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where I, the first church that I pastored, old Jamie Fowle was the chaplain of the whole Christian community, and even the Jewish rabbis accepted him as a sort of spiritual father to the community, and uh, some earnest young men from Tennessee Temple, an independent Baptist group down there, had been sent out on training in evangelism, and so they didn't know who Jamie Fowle was And anyway, It's good to ask anybody the question, but Dr. Fowle was coming out of a building, and this young man walked up, and he said, uh, excuse me, sir, but can you tell me, are you saved? And Dr. Fowle said, I'm going down the street here. Would you be willing to walk with me? And he said, yes. So Dr. Fowl began to teach him. He said, I have been saved. I was chosen in Christ before the foundation of the earth. I have been saved when Jesus Christ died on the cross and took my sins. I have been saved when the Holy Spirit of God was poured out upon the church at Pentecost and the new covenant community was formed. I have been saved when I was a young man and heard the gospel And God quickened my heart to receive it by faith, and I repented and asked for forgiveness of my sin. I have been saved. I am being saved. As the Apostle Paul told the Philippian church, we are to be working out our salvation in fear and trembling, knowing that it is God within us, both willing and doing his good pleasure. I am being saved even as we walk up this street. I shall be saved when at last Christ comes again in glory and raises up my body from the dust, and at last he makes all things new, the new heavens, the new earth, and in that day, that will be joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's a biblical view of things, I would say. And it was a great opportunity for the young man to realize that it's not simply, uh, you know, I'm always... And I'm not mocking anybody. Thank God for people who care about the souls of others. But I've always been a little interested in people who just want to know, when were you saved? Tell me, when were you saved? It would be like going to a party and walking around to meet people saying, when were you born? When were you born? Where were you born? Great, good meeting you. I know you now. How about you? When were you born? Where were you? I mean, salvation is a life. It is a new life. As the Apostle Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, this is what John's presenting in balance in these opening two verses of chapter two. Because he starts by saying, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I'm 74 years of age. I was a pastor. Oh, I still am. Thank you. Thank you. I was you've given me the opportunity. I was gonna say I was a pastor for I've been a pastor for 45 years or more. And I've gone to a lot of conferences and I've spoken at a lot of them. And I have never once heard anyone at a Christian conference say the message that I'm bringing to you is so that you may not sin ever have you I mean I just if I have I I missed it it's always about we're all such a mess but let me tell you the good news there's forgiveness well praise God but he starts by saying don't miss this before we talk about that I want you to begin living a whole new life. So we have to ask, then, if he says, I'm writing to you so that you may not sin, what is sin? Well, um, funny. To me, a funny story, because it's my oldest child, my daughter, uh, Rachel, who's now got grown children of her own. But when she was just a little peewee, as soon as she could start talking... Uh, I began catechizing her, thinking, you know, you learn on your first one. That's all I can say. (laughs) So I thought, and I thought I'd start with the Socratic method. So I'll never forget. She was in her her high chair, and her, her little brother was next to her in his, and I think he'd put his spaghetti on his head as he would do, and it was running down. And I said, I wanted to teach her the catechism. So I thought I'd just start by asking her the question and see what she answered. So I said, Rachel, what is man's chief in? And she looked at me for a moment and she said, girls. And I realized, for most men, that's true. Um, you know, people say, "You." You know, the old story, the stone face, uh, Hawthorne's story, where he gazed at it until he became like it. And the thing is, you turn into what you spend all your time thinking about. Well, that's not true, or most young men would be young women by now. I mean, (laughs) but the point that I was making before I got off, sorry. Um, In catechizing Rachel, I taught her those opening parts of of the catechism, and they got into her. And I found that out because uh, when she was three, Mary Ann said, look, her little brother's a handful. I'm going to put her in a mother's day out two mornings a week. So maybe she was four. I think she was three. So we took her to a church, went to pick her up. I, I was all in on this, wanted to see how she'd done. And the woman who was watching her class came and just said, I need to talk to you about your daughter. And we thought, oh, no, what? What did she do? And she said, there's something you really, I mean, she said, I don't even know. It was frightening. And I said, what? What happened? She said, I wanted to teach the kids, so I just, I was going to teach them about sin and righteousness, and I said, does anyone know what sin is? And she said, your daughter just looked up from play and said something to me. It just frightened me. I did I said, did she say, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God? She said, yes, that's it. I said, I said, it's the catechism. You, know, it's, you free church people don't know this stuff. but um, That's what sin is. It is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Well, that sounds like legalism. Well, only the the problem with, the, with Israel was not that it wanted to obey the law, it's that it didn't understand what the law was. The central call in the scriptures, the central theme is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus comes along in John 13, acknowledging that a lot of us are broken In our own self-love, and we shouldn't be using ourselves as a model. So he says, I give you a new commandment, make me the standard. Love one another as I've loved you. But the central theme of the Scripture is loving God and loving one another. So what's the law about? If I say, okay, love God, but what does that mean? Does it mean I get emotional when I think of Him? No. The law says, look, This is what it looks like to love God. You don't have other gods, false gods. You don't make idols. You don't take his name in vain. You keep his day holy unto him to spend worshiping and resting and enjoying fellowship with him. Okay, what does it look like to honor and to love my neighbor? Well, it starts by learning to honor your father and your mother who gave you life. Even if they were not honorable people, you honor them because they were the ones through whom God gave you life. And this is how you love your neighbor. You don't take his life. You don't take his wife. You don't take his stuff. You don't take his reputation. And you don't sit in your house, looking at him and wishing that everything he had was yours. You're not wanting to take his life. We don't want to be like Woody Allen, who when he was asked if he'd ever regretted anything in his life, he thought a few minutes and he said, the only thing I really regret is that I wasn't born someone else. No, that's the Tenth Commandment. Uh, (laughs) Thou shalt not covet, uh, which is looking and wanting somebody else's life. So that's what the law is. Transgressions of the law are not rule-breaking. They're failures to love. That's what sin is. Sin is a failure to love the Lord and to love others. And so he says, I'm writing you because I don't want you to continue to live in that broken way. But does he then expect perfection? No. He immediately follows by saying, but if we sin, of course, when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation of our sin. And not ours only, but the sins of the whole world. What's he saying? It's interesting that the word that's translated here is advocate, is that word paraclete that John uses in his gospel in John 14, of the Holy Spirit. It's the one who is called alongside. So there's a sense in which here, where we're living, God the Holy Spirit is called alongside us. In fact, he's in us, if we're his. But we also have one who's our advocate, the one whom we call, who's in the presence of the Father. We're bound to him by the Spirit as we'll see in a minute. But he's saying, we have this great paraclete, our our representative, it's really a legal representative, it can be translated that way, in the presence of the Father, pleading our case. And what he is pleading is his own sacrifice. He is the propitiation for our sin. Now, I, I, I mean, that's a big word. What does it mean? I had a friend who said, I've always felt as though God didn't like me, and he said, my fear is uh, when I get to heaven, the people in front of me will be told, uh, all you need to do is spell God properly to get in, and they're all saying G-O-D, G-O-D, and he's (laughs) welcome. And I get there, and and he says, and how do you spell propitiation? Um, But propitiation is a word that means atoning sacrifice. The Greek word hilasterion was used to translate the Hebrew Kippur is in Yam Kippur, Day of Atonement, day when the sacrifice was offered that turned aside God's wrath. Now, the reason it's important to understand this is sometimes when you and I really blow it, when we sin, when we say, when we do what we know that we ought not, we can feel as though we're back at ground zero, as though I've failed again. The wrath of God is no. If you are in Christ, you will never again come under God's wrath and curse. Why? Because the price has been paid. The penalty has been paid. That's why, we, as we saw last week, John says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. How can God be just and forgive sinners? Because the debt has been paid. Our account has been cleared. We are now his children and so, when we sin, we may experience his fatherly displeasure to bring us to repentance. I had a wild son. He's now big, powerful uh, former Marine. Uh, but when he was a little guy, uh, he was as big inside a little body as he is now inside a big one. And uh, he, he, he was just always into something. Well, If a neighbor came over and tried to burn the house down and I wasn't able to make headway, I might call the police. If my son tried to burn the house down, he didn't do that. But if he did something, I wasn't going to call the police. I was going to deal with it because I was his father and I loved him and I want to bring him to a place of obedience and truth. So, he is the propitiation for sin means that you and I, if we are in Christ, will never again come under the wrath and displeasure of God. And what I want you to get from these two verses is simply this. He wants to call us to a life where we're no longer walking in brokenness and sin. But the reality is, until we are with the Lord, we are going to have times when we stumble, when we blow it, when we don't love God and don't love one another the way that we ought and so we confess our sin and find that he's faithful and just. Why? Because we have an advocate with the Father, and He Himself is advocating through His own gift of His life in place of ours, He is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, he says, but for the sins of the whole world. In other words, there is no tribe or tongue or people or nation, no rich or poor, no bright or or not bright there's no category of person whom his atoning sacrifice cannot claim and make new. And so that's why mission is crucial. We're entrusted with getting that message to the nations and living it in a way that will give them reason to believe that the gospel is true. Now, very quickly, what about the final verses, verses three through six? Well, he then shows us Three things that we can know. Remember, chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I want you, I'm writing this so that you may know that you have eternal life. Well, how do I know it? Well, that's what he's writing this letter for, to start telling us things that we will know that will cumulatively give us confidence. And he tells us three things in these verses very quickly. First, in an interesting construction, he says, by this you may know that you know God. What can i know you can know you know god Uh, how can i know that i know god he says you keep his commandments now again don't think of that in the legalistic drive where are the rules what do i do he's talking about your life is beginning to change so that now the desire of your heart is new you are desiring to know god you are desiring to walk in His ways. And the more you know Him, the more you trust Him, the more you realize that His ways are right. And when your ways bump into it, hopefully by the time you're as old as I am, you're, you're beginning to realize my ways always end up in a mess. And His ways always end up leading to life and joy and peace, even if the path to it is difficult. So He's saying, how Do we know that we know him because we have a new desire to walk in his ways? It's a new trajectory of life. It used to be, perhaps, that we'd come running when we were in trouble and seek God's favor for a particular situation, and then we're relieved when it was resolved because we could go back to life the way that we liked living it. When God has gone to work in your life, you begin to have a whole new set of desires. You begin to want to know Him, to please Him, to grow in that, because you realize this is what I've been looking for. Country music often has great theology, and one of the finer theological country music songs was Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places. That was uh, certainly the story of my life for all my years of running. So that's the first thing. You may know that you love God as you have this new trajectory. The second is even more astonishing, you don't just know him, but you love him. And who loves him? How do I know if I love him? Same thing. He says, those who walk according to his word, in other words, who believe and are beginning to obey. Remember the old hymn, trust and obey? That's the gospel message, trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And this is what John's pressing in this. We know that we love him or are coming to love him as we increasingly want to walk in his word. And then the final brings everything home. He says, this is how we know that we are in him. The gospel isn't about Jesus off there. God out there, and somehow I open up the lines every now and then, and we communicate, and then it shuts down, and now I'm on my own again. No. The definition of a Christian in the New Testament is someone who is in Christ, a new creation. Christ in you, the hope of glory by his Spirit, and his Spirit baptizes us into him, says Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We are in him, a new creation. Old things passed away. All things become new. It's a new life. And so he says, This is how we can know that we're in him if we abide in him and guess what? Do what he says. At every level, it's okay, let's cut to the chase. How are you living? It doesn't mean that when we blow it, we lose our salvation. It simply says that salvation is a life. It is a life lived that leaves a legacy of love of God in Christ and love of people in and through Christ Jesus. That's the legacy. That's the beauty of it. I'll, I'll I'll try to tell you something. I wasn't sure I should. Okay, Lord, give me <clears throat> give me self control. Um, I I wrote my kids and grandkids this morning. Um, I sent them all a text uh, because it Mary Ann, my wife, would have turned 70 today. So um, uh, it the place I'm living. Thank you all so much for bringing me here. I've never lived in any place with such a gorgeous view. I'm right on, uh, right on the water in Eastport. And so this morning, before the sun came up, I took my oatmeal and my coffee and went out, uh, sat down out on the back porch. And there were a number of very lovely sailboats that had been moored there over the weekend. And one of them was very quietly getting ready to... Put back out to sea. And so as I watched, uh, it was great fun to watch them getting everything ready quietly, not disturbing the others. That's the good thing about sailboats is they're quiet. Uh, the bad thing is you, can, you measure your speed by dropping corks over the side and seeing how long <laughs> they go. But they're, they're more fun than anything. So I'm watching and they slipped their mooring and just quietly headed on out. And the sun was coming up. They were heading into the sun. And after they had left, I could still track the journey by the wake as it just slowly diffused over the inlet there. And I thought that that's how we're to live to leave that wake of love and compassion and testimony to Christ. That's how Mary Marianne lived. I told the kids, we're still living in the wake of her love for us. And that's how you and I are to live. Salvation is a life. And that's why he says, my dear children, I want you to walk in this new life. And that's what I want for you. That's what I long for, for each one of you. Father, how I thank you that it is not a new life that we could ever work out, but it is your gift. And I pray that we won't settle for a little shrunken version of this majestic salvation. Grant us, in Christ Jesus, the maturity, the joy, the wonder of your grace. And I pray it in his majestic name. Amen. Would you please stand with us and sing?